This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A state legislative committee voted last week to block Medicaid coverage of gender-affirming treatments for transgender patients. The Capital Times reports that due to a 2019 court decision, the committee's vote doesn't change anything for the time being. Under state law, Wisconsin has banned Medicaid coverage for gender-affirming treatments since 1996. But that rule was rendered unenforceable after a 2019 decision by a U.S. District Court ruled that it was unconstitutional. The new rule, which would have overwritten the 1996 law, was blocked by the state's Joint Committee for the Review of Administrative Rules. Committee co-chair representative Adam Nalen, a Republican from Pewaukee, says the Republican-controlled committee voted to preserve the rule in case a U.S. District Court's ruling is someday overturned by a higher court. The city of Madison is pushing to get a new temporary homeless shelter up and running before winter. According to WISC-TV, the Dairy Drive Project will provide housing and shelter for residents currently living at nearby Rindell Park. The property will eventually have 30 tiny homes, each measuring about 64 square feet. The tiny houses will offer electricity and heat, while bathrooms and showers will be included in a separate building on the property. The Madison School Board approved a $538 million budget for the 2021 through 2022 school year. The budget entails a 9% property tax increase on the average Madison home. The budget also includes a pay increase of about 3.2% for district teachers, the highest allowable under state law. Meanwhile, the school board also approved a suspension moratorium for grades 4K through 5th. District leaders hope that the moratorium, which begins today, will keep more kids in school, especially black students, who are disproportionately disciplined via suspensions. According to data from the district in grades 4K through 3rd, half of those suspended in the 2019 and 2022 school year were black, despite making up only one-fifth of the overall student population. And finally, Madison West High School will be upgrading a pool project included in the district's 2020 capital referendum after fundraising an additional $1.6 million. According to the Capital Times, the project will expand the pool's lanes from 6 to 10, add a diving well, and a new spectator space. The expanded project was unanimously approved by the school board at its meeting yesterday. The Madison Finance Committee has rejected three budget amendments that would have diverted police funding to the city's recently launched crisis response team. That team, which began operating last month, sends a trained paramedic and mental health responder to certain nonviolent 911 calls. The program's goal is to replace the police as the default first responders in mental health emergencies. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the three amendments would have cut $800,000 from the Madison Police Department's budget and funneled it to the Crisis Response Program, which is operated by the Fire Department. The city's budget currently calls for about $600,000 in funding for this program through 2022. Madison Fire Chief Stephen Davis said that more than doubling the program's funding in just two months would be, quote, a little premature. UW-Madison's homecoming is this weekend, which means the return of two major annual celebrations, the homecoming parade and the ensuing closure of several city streets. Beginning 4 p.m. this Friday, Langdon Street and surrounding streets will be closed to through traffic. The parade kicks off at 5.30 p.m. and runs along Langdon and Gilman Street. And now for your daily COVID-19 roundup via the state's Department of Health Services. 
Wisconsin's rolling seven-day average of new COVID-19 cases currently stands at 1,865. Dane County currently has the lowest rate of community transmission in the state, according to the CDC. The county has been dropped from high levels of community transmission down to substantial. That's the second highest rating on the CDC scale, but one few Midwestern counties have been able to achieve. And now on to today's top stories. Earlier today, about a dozen demonstrators gathered outside the Democratic Party of Wisconsin's main office on North Pinckney Street in downtown Madison. They were protesting what they say is Democrats' failure to enact meaningful immigration reform since President Joe Biden took office. WRT producer Jonah Chester was on the scene and brings us this story. This afternoon, as traffic blew by on North Pinckney Street, a group of about a dozen folks were constructing an altar outside the Wisconsin Democratic Party's offices. On the altar, demonstrators laid food, candles, incense, and the photos of those who have lost their lives during interactions with the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, or ICE for short. Larissa Joanna, the organizer behind today's action, explains the significance of the altar, also known as an ofrenda, and the message it was meant to convey. Right, so Dia de los Muertos, it's coming up for many of us indigenous uh, Mexicans and natives of this American continent. It is a tradition where we honor our dead ones, our loved ones, and our ancestors. In this occasion here, we're honoring those murdered by ICE that be murdered either on their way to the U.S or at detention centers. Wisconsin currently operates two detention centers, one in Kenosha and one about an hour away in Juneau. Joanna continues. So today we want to honor them and say that a, a pathway to stop committing this genocide and violence against our communities and terrorizing our communities, a pathway to abolishing ICE is creating these opportunities of protection, of giving people a path to citizenship. I come from an undocumented family. My dad was arrested in our home by ICE uh, when I was 15 years old, almost 15 years ago, and he fought through the immigration system. We fought for him along with organizations La Voces de la Frontera. He's now a U.S. resident. We believe that this opportunity can be out there for all of the rest of the undocumented communities that are working families and people that work two, three jobs and have a clean record that are essential for this community and this economy. We believe that opportunity can be out there for dreamers, for essential workers, for TPS recipients, and for all of those who don't have a sense of human rights when they have been in this country paying taxes and following the laws. Sunshine Rainbow has been protesting alongside Joanna for the past several years. I'm a queer black trans woman, but I stand in solidarity with the Latinx community because we are family. All of us are family, and we all must support each other and uplift each other. In the final months of the Trump presidency, the death rate of immigrants in ICE's custody spiked. According to the agency's own data, 17 people died in their care last year, nearly double the amount that died in 2019. Five folks have died in ICE custody so far this year. Joanna and her fellow protesters say that President Joe Biden and federal Democrats haven't followed through on promises of immigration reform made on the campaign trail last year. Democratic leadership, right, in the Congress, the Senate, 
the Biden-Kamala Harris administration has the opportunity to provide this uh, path to citizenship, uh, citizenship for all. It's a immigration reform that it's overdue, not just in the country, but in the state of Wisconsin, where many of the essential workers that have been working during this pandemic have been undocumented. According to CNN, federal Democrats attempted to insert a pathway to citizenship in the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package, but were blocked by the Senate parliamentarian, who functions essentially as a political referee. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. A coalition is working to eliminate barriers for women landowners interested in adopting conservation practices in Wisconsin. This movement is poised to gain more steam this week with the launch of a statewide educator network. For more about the story, we turn to Mike Mullen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Efforts continue to close the conservation gap for women landowners in Wisconsin. This week, organizers say the movement is taking a giant leap by adopting a statewide approach to provide education. On Thursday, a virtual event signifies the launch of an educator network to include helpful voices from all over Wisconsin. So far this year, the coalition leading the outreach has hosted workshops with a more regional feel. Chris Marion of the group Wisconsin Women in Conservation says they're looking to build on those sessions with this week's event. We've been doing research after every one of those events, surveys and questions to learn what's working and what isn't working. She says those findings will be presented and there will still be opportunities for regional discussions. The 2017 Census of Agriculture says women make up 35% of farmers in Wisconsin, which is higher than the national average. But conservation programs have skewed toward men. The Michael Fields Agricultural Institute is the leading partner for this new outreach effort. Marion says women have traditionally been underserved by state and federal conservation offices, but there are visible signs of progress. For instance, a lot more women are actually working in county land conservation departments. A lot more women are the NRCS agents that are on the ground. She's referring to the Natural Resources Conservation Service, which plays a key role in connecting farmers and landowners with cost-sharing incentives to adopt environmentally friendly practices that improve soil health and help their bottom line as well. The coalition says it's time for women landowners to secure those financial benefits. This week's virtual kickoff begins at 10 a.m. and organizers hope to schedule more of these meetups each year. More information is on the Wisconsin Women in Conservation website. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. 
A Wisconsin judge has set the final ground rules for admissible evidence in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse is charged with killing two and injuring a third during protests against police violence in Kenosha last year. The trial is set to begin this coming Monday, November 1st. For more about today's pre-trial hearing and what to keep an eye on when the trial gets underway, WORT producer Jonah Chester spoke with Bruce Felmetti, a reporter covering courts at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. So today was the final scheduled hearing in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse. He's set to go to trial formally next week. Now, can you walk me through the particulars and the issues at hand during today's hearing? In particular, there was some debate back and forth about specific language to be used during the trial. Can you help me unpack that debate? I understand that's sort of taken off on Twitter and online. Right, right. <laughs> My own editors wanted me to rewrite the story to, to take a look at that because of the it says such Twitter life to it. So essentially, this judge, Judge Bruce Schrader, has an, an odd but long-standing, apparently, rule that he never allows prosecutors to refer to the victims of crimes as victims until someone's convicted of a crime. So if, some, if it's a murder trial, they refer to what we typically say the victim as the decedent, or they refer to people of other kinds of crimes by their names. Or, you know, any other phrase, but he doesn't like the word victim. He feels it's loaded and is, you know, in favor of the state. So when the prosecutor in this case got wind or decided or maybe just hunch, I forget, that the defense was going to raise characterizations of the victims here as looters, rioters, arsonists, or other what he called pejorative terms, he asked in a motion in limine, you know, ahead of trial to, to ask the judge to ban the defense from using those terms. And he sort of argued it's only fair if I can't call them victims, the defense shouldn't be able to call them arsonists and looters and rioters without some specific proof that these particular people were doing that and that Kyle Rittenhouse saw that happen and had reason to call them that himself or perceive them as that. But the judge wasn't really buying it. I mean, he sort of said, well... My rule is steadfast, and you're familiar with it about victims. As to these other things, there was a lot of rioting and looting and arson going on. And, you know, let's just sort of see where the evidence takes us, essentially. If, if the defense can introduce witnesses or other evidence to suggest that any of these people who were shot or killed by Littenhouse were, in fact, looting, rioting, or, you know, lighting fires, then he would let them refer to them that way. Now, you mentioned that that rule was somewhat odd, but it, it, it is longstanding in Schrader's courtroom. How unusual is that for a judge to be that insistent about language in their courtroom? Is that sort of outside well, of the I, average? I can only speak to my own experience and um, a little bit of colleagues' experience that I've rub, run, rubbed up against, you know, in 25, 30 years of doing this court trials and such in several states. I, I've never heard it before. And judges pretty much control their own courtrooms, you know. I mean, a lot of judges have other weird quirks and ticks, and I guess no one's ever appealed his ruling about that enough to get it before a, an appellate court to have any kind of ruling on it. So I guess he sticks with it. To my, I've never seen it. I've never seen a judge have that rule any other case or trial I've ever seen. And there was also some debate during today's hearing about what would be allowed in terms of what police officers uh, allegedly told Rittenhouse during that night. That was actually, to me, the more interesting ruling and the, and the bigger point that I think that the, the prosecution was trying to raise. He, uh, a pretty famous piece of the video that everybody's seen 
in this situation was shortly before Kyle started walking south away from this repair garage that he and the other men were so supposedly guarding a bearcat rolled up with law enforcement people. I think it was a sheriff's office bearcat and they offered water and Kyle ran up and said, yeah, I'd take a water. And they, they gave him a water and they said, someone, I don't know, they've identified that person, but somebody up in the turret said, hey, we really appreciate you guys. We really do. So the prosecution did not want to allow that in uh, because he's afraid that it's part of a strategy of the defense to essentially blame law enforcement, which a lot of people have done, you know, for what happened that evening. But he doesn't want to be able to suggest that that phrase and other things that were said to Kyle by law enforcement officers and their lack of taking any action against him and the other armed men was essentially endorsing their actions and therefore had a big bearing on his state of mind. And that's what this all comes down to ultimately. And their argument is by letting all this in, it's suggesting that, well, it was the police's fault for letting him think that he was allowed to do all these things and let him sort of give him more confidence out there doing things that maybe otherwise he'd think were recognized or reckless, but weren't in his mind because of the way the police were treating them. It's a little convoluted, but that's the point the state's making. I think, I think Binger, the prosecutor said something like, is not really a trial about police tactics. It's a trial about what the defendant did that night is how he tried to sum it up. Now, during this hearing process, has there been anything? You mentioned that that decision on what Kyle Rittenhouse or what the police allegedly told Kyle Rittenhouse during that night was one of the more interesting things that came down today. Have there been any curveballs during this hearing process as you followed it that you were sort of came out of left field from either the defense or the prosecution? You know, there were a few things that the, that the state tried to introduce as other acts evidence that I thought were kind of a reach. And they, and they failed. Um, you know, one was to bring in the evidence of uh, Kyle posing with the Proud Boys at, after his arraignment in January at a, at a tavern in Mount Pleasant, I think it was. And so, but that's so after the fact, um, they were hoping to get that in to show that he had a, an interest in Proud Boys or uh, militias or white supremacy. And the defense was really adamant that that had, you know, happened after the fact, way months after the shooting, and that none of the other research into Rittenhouse's cell phone and computers showed that he ever, you know, did searches for those groups or was on chat boards with them or wanted to leave and learn more about them. So that got thrown. I thought that was sort of a reach, kind of interesting. And from the defense side, uh, a similar reach that was one of the few defense motions that was been uh, granted, I mean, denied by the judge, was they were trying to bring up they wanted to be allowed to bring up the specific record of Joseph Rosenbaum as the first person that was killed. And he, of course, has this, you know, pretty bad record as a child molester. They wanted to bring up these details to show that as a felon, he knew he couldn't have a gun. And that was his motivation for trying to take the gun from Rittenhouse. But the judge agreed that, you know, that's just too far. You know, we're not going to tell the jury he's a child molester. And then they're going to think, well, he was, he was, he should have been shot. So it's okay. So the judge did deny that as well. The last thing that's pending that is still a pending motion still is uh, the, the defense has asked for a reconsideration about dismissing count six. And that's the charge that Rittenhouse was unlawfully in possession of a firearm under age 18. 
So after weeks of these pre-trial hearings, what are the essential things people should know going into this coming weeks? What are the things folks should keep an eye on as the trial proper yeah. gets underway? I think the key thing is going to be the video. And many people who have an interest in the case have probably watched the video or seen clips of it on social media and regular news coverage. I think they're going to rely heavily on the video and and reach out to them with, and, and supplement it with people who were there. Because obviously there were people who took the videos and lots of other people who were around that evening. They haven't identified all of them, not even the one person who's one of the listed victims in the charge. Uh, somebody that Kyle shot at when he first fell to the ground in the middle of Sheridan Road. They never identified that person. <clears throat> but he's the victim in a charge of recklessly endangering. And I think that's really going to, there'll be lots of other stuff that comes and goes and you know, surrounding, but that's really going to boil down to, did the jury think it's reasonable? And the part that people won't pay attention to, my attention, my, my opinion is probably the most important thing is when they select the jury. The judge in this case uh, denied the, side, the request from both the state and the, de the defense to use a questionnaire to help sort of winnow down the pool of jurors, potential jurors. And he's hoping to do this in about a day. And I just think this is the kind of case where people are so strongly polarized, you know, one, one side or the other, um, even if they're not that familiar with the facts, I think because of the context with police brutality protests and Black Lives Matter and then the, the militia and the you know, Second Amendment gun rights groups, I think they're just really, really some strong opinions. And if they get, you know, a bunch of one side or the other, then what the evidence shows won't really matter, I think the people are going to just make a decision what they think is right. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me today and for your continuing reporting on this issue. I appreciate it. Okay, thanks for calling. Bruce Felmetti is a reporter with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, where he covers courts and legal affairs. You can find his full coverage of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial online at the Journal Sentinel's website. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call shares the latest news from UW-Madison campus. Wildlife Weekly reflects on summertime wild animal rescue success stories and then looks ahead to winter. And Radio Astronomy takes a trip to a new planet discovered in another galaxy. But now I'll take a quick break and then check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week on Cardinal Call, contributor Hope Carnop unpacks a recent press briefing UW-Madison Chancellor Rebecca Blank gave to campus student newspapers.
Hello and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. Every year, Chancellor Rebecca Blank sits down for an interview with campus newspapers, including the Daily Cardinal. This was her last address to campus media after announcing she will become the next president of Northwestern. Our own college news editor, Sophia Vento, was there to interview Blank. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Sophia. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start by talking a little bit more about Blank's announcement that she will be departing UW in nine months. What did she have to say about that next step? Well, it seemed to be a really, you know, personal decision. She mentioned that, you know, she spent a lot of her career in Chicago. That's where her daughter was born, where her daughter um, graduated from college, but also made it a point to really look at the more more so the differences between Northwestern and UW-Madison, so sort of that private versus public dichotomy. She mentioned the um, Wisconsin State Legislature as a serious point of contention during her tenure as chancellor and sort of just emphasized that she's been here for, you know, nearly nine, ten years and that it's time for the next chapter and, you know, she's been in a lot of these battles. I know a lot about public institutional management. I've enjoyed it in some ways. There's no question that some of the challenges that this university faces are around the constraints of that the state imposes upon it. We are deeply micromanaged by the state, um, you know, even though they fund a quite small share of our budget these days. And, you know, that is part of the challenges here. It's a challenge I think it's time for someone else to take on it. You know, it's, you know, you get tired of fighting the same fights again and again. What are her hopes for whoever is going to take her position next? Yeah, so she sort of made it clear that it's really not her business to instruct her successor and give them much advice, but she essentially made sure to emphasize that they've done a lot of work that has created foundations and mechanisms in which they can build upon and continue to create new ones. You know, I would hope that whatever candidates they interview, they ask those questions of. You know, whether it's around student life and students of color or whether it's around sustainability on campus, that it's someone who comes with some commitments and some ideas about things to do. Um, you know, there are a number of things we have going and a number of issues. And, you know, part of my, you know, it's always true. I say, well, you know, don't throw it all out. There may be changes that a new person will have ideas about, but build on what's been done. She definitely thinks that the person has a job cut out for them, but has a, a, the framework to really do something new while still continuing her legacy. So Blank was highlighting some diversity initiatives under her administration. What did she also have to say about her relationship with the students who are advocating for racial justice, especially within the last year? Yeah, so she really was quick to emphasize the difficulties of the situation and how um, hard it was and obviously emotional this time was for so many different students of color on campus. And she really made sure to highlight that this absence of, you know, face-to-face, in-person meetings and communication really was detrimental to everyone's ability to communicate effectively and really bring around, bring about significant change that maybe these student advocacy groups would have liked to see. You had a number of students, particularly our students of color, coming off of an incredibly painful summer, right, of, um, of activism and of watching things happen at the national level. And all of that collided last year in a way that I think is very unfortunate. And um, I will say over last year, we did not have the level of regular communication that I would have liked to have had with a number of student groups. 
And I will say there were, you know, I think one or two student groups that had very little interest in talking. They were mainly just mad and they wanted to protest and that's fine. But we also made some progress with some other student groups that we really talked with and we did some things over the year. Um, but things got crossways. I think a lot of it was we never even saw each other, right? It was always, always on Zoom or at a distance or by email. And, you know, that, that just adds to the sense of non-connection. So it's, it's good to be back. It's not by chance that now that we're back this year, things are in a different place. Ultimately, she does think that the university has done a relatively good job um, increasing diversity, whether that be through enrollment and, you know, creating and um, really striding with these programs such as Bucky's Tuition Promise and um, different frameworks within the um, faculty and departments relating to diversity and inclusion. So I definitely think she understands the difficulty of the situation and does have a lot of regret about last year and how it went down, but is ultimately, ultimately sees that the university has made progress in this area. Yeah, so along those same lines, some of these groups um, advocated for the removal of Chamberlain Rock, which happened over the summer. What did she have to say about how that issue was represented both in the local media and when it also got some national attention? Yeah, she was very um, disappointed with national coverage of the um, Chamberlain, Chamberlain Rock removal, specifically relating to the New York Times and some opinion pieces they published this year. I was more than a little annoyed at this New York Times person who, with no conversation with anyone here on campus, wrote a story that was only half true. You know, did not recognize the fact we went through a nine-month process. We had large conversations. We brought in all the stakeholders. We made a set of decisions that I think once they were made, they didn't generate a lot of controversy on campus because we went through an extended process. As for local media, she actually felt that felt and feels that they continue to um, really understand the complexity of the situation and the removal of Chamberlain Rock, all the different people and groups and you know mechanisms within the university, but also community advocacy and community groups that played a role in this. Ultimately, she really emphasize that it was a long process with really large conversations that brought in a lot of different stakeholders. And she ultimately feels that they did the right thing, whether that be educationally, you know, keeping the rock in a place where it can be used scientifically, but also for the cultural of UW-Madison. And was really disappointed with the way the national media covered it. Yeah, so shifting gears a little bit um, to COVID-19 policies, what does she have to say about how the university handled that situation last year, especially with, you know, the closure of dorms and the Smart Restart program? Yeah, so obviously COVID-19 was a very difficult thing to deal with and address for literally everyone ever, but also universities and their um, protocol. She really feels that given the information that they had and given that the resources they had, they did the best they could. We had to, in the space of four months, from March until school opened, completely remake how we taught classes, how we dealt with people, setting up a whole testing organization that could reach everyone, you know, and then, you know, setting up a vaccine organization after that. I mean, it was, it was a major lift. And did we do it all perfectly? No. After we closed those dorms, what is it, the second, third week of school, I think we finally figured out that how we handle this because we never again had another thing. What we were doing differently is as soon as we start seeing a cluster of cases in a dorm, we went in and we tested the whole dorm in the next two to three days and pulled people out so cases didn't mushroom, right? Um, and we started testing twice a week, which we hadn't started at. But 
you know, that was a learning curve. And we were going through it along with every other university. You know, I would say, would I have liked to have done that differently? Yes, but I don't know how we could have. She um, emphasized uh, specifically the Badger Badge program and the more increased testing second semester, the spring semester, as areas that really, really worked and they were very pleased to see them work. Um, but ultimately, reflecting back, she doesn't see how they could have necessarily done it differently, just given that it was a time of so much um, uncertainty. So going back to her departure from UW, one of the more important questions that people have been asking is what is going to happen to Becky's key lime pie um, at Daily Scoop. What Did she have any updates on that? She doesn't know. Um, she asked us actually what happened to Barry Alvarez's um, ice cream. I wasn't aware that Barry Alvarez has an, had an ice cream, but yeah, she's not sure. So that's something that we'll get, we're going to have to keep asking about. Is there anything else that Blink discussed that you think listeners should know? I think that it's important to note that, you know, she's not really sure where the future of UW-Madison is coming from either, where this leadership is going to come from. And it's going to be really interesting to see how this transition of with both her and um, UW System President Tommy Thompson leaving has on, you know, the UW system as a whole, but also on the university itself over the next year or so. Great. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com or download our app. You can also find links to our podcasts on our website. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. This episode of Wildlife Weekly feature contributor Jackie Sandberg looks ahead to winter at the Dane County Humane Society and highlights some of the shelter's summer success stories. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment and today we're going to provide our winter wildlife update. Um, and you know it's been a little while since I have uh, expressed you know excitement and appreciation for everything that is summer coming to a close uh, but boy does it feel really good to be in our slow season right now. Um, we had such a busy summer and we had thousands of animals come into our facility this year. Um, and a big shout out just goes to all of our interns, our volunteers, the staff members that are here day in and day out helping us with these rehabilitation activities. Um, and a big thank you to the public for being understanding through the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, the last year and a half or so for rehabilitators, especially in Wisconsin, has really been difficult. You know, we've had to navigate species admissions and reduced staffing, you know, worry about transmission risks, about diseases, so many things that could have, you know, gone wrong in a pandemic situation. It, it's a scary time, you know, for us in general. Um, it feels like things are back in the upswing um, and we are open to rehabilitating all of our native species here in our state. And we call this our fall and winter period right now. 
which means that we only have a, a nice solid group of uh, volunteers helping in the morning and in the evening shifts for animal care. So our animals that are considered diurnal or maybe morning eaters and feeders, um, we have lots of different species right now. We are currently rehabilitating uh, three eastern gray squirrels. They are a tree squirrel species and you probably see them outside all the time bouncing around, probably trying to bury their nuts for winter so that they have food storage. And then we also have an eastern chipmunk who is outside, kind of came in with some neurological condition, uh, who is looking just absolutely great as of our pre-release exam yesterday. So wishing that little friend luck that he gets to be hopefully released by next week especially since the weather is going to be a bit warmer. We have some diurnal raptors. So we have red-tailed hawks that are here in the Wildlife Center. We just released one last week. Um, and we also have a hummingbird that's going to be overwintered with us again this year. Seems like the last three years we've uh, overwintered a hummingbird, which is kind of interesting. Um, this one uh, came in with some injuries, a bit of a neurologic head tilt, um, and then had some poor feather condition that we didn't feel comfortable releasing for a long migration. So we've got a nice big tent set up in one of our biggest spacious rooms in our Sundance Center. Um, and that has uh, all of the setup, you know, hanging vines and nectar feeders, flowers, and then also light um, to mimic the timing of how much light would be available in migration for that type of bird. So you have a ruby-throated ruby hummingbird that's going to fly, you know, from Wisconsin, say, all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and obviously, you know, days get shorter and darker here in Wisconsin in the winter, and there's not as much light available. And you don't want to house a bird in captivity without the right kind of light exposure that maybe they would be used to in the tropics. So what we've done is set up this really great, you know, UVA and UVB uh, light uh, setup, something that's full-spectrum light, so something that that you'd use in captivity zoo situation for captive housing for wild birds. And then we've been able to adjust the timing of the lights so that they are on and off on timers at different times of the day. Even though it might be dark outside, it'll still be light within the, the room in the enclosure that the bird is in. And we've also staggered them so that it can simulate kind of a dawn and dusk situation. So, you know, maybe one of the lights goes off at a certain time. It starts to get just gradually darker into the night, and then it gradually starts to brighten in the morning. So a really fun species to definitely work with, uh, difficult to rehab for sure, but we tend to have pretty good success here at our Humane Society. We also have a number of songbirds. We've got a few uh, quarantined birds, for example, house finches with avian conjunctivitis, which is usually a bacterial transmission at your feeders. We see a lot of those in the fall, and we do have a few of them here, either just finished with their quarantine and recovery or in the process, as well as goldfinches. And we also have some morning doves and a catbird and some other really great specialty species. We've also been seeing many different birds coming through, especially ones that are more migratory, like juncos and sparrows, white-throated and white-crowned sparrows mostly. And so they've been in and out of the facility being released and treated, uh, which has also been pretty excellent. We have an American kestrel, which I talked about in a previous WORT segment of Wildlife Weekly, and that bird is still with us and in care. Um, so those are a lot of our morning eaters. Uh, and then if you want to rope in the reptiles, we've got our four turtles that are overwintering with us at the start of our fall and winter season. So um, we have a big snapping turtle taking up most of our reptile recovery center space and then a number of painted turtles and then our blandings turtle. We still have the same one that we've had for quite a while that was recovering from a prairie burn. So it takes, again, a very long time. So that turtle will still be a while yet, um, but still excited to get her through hopefully one more winter with our program. 
Um, and then when we switch over to our nocturnal species, we have owls. So of course, barred owls, uh, we definitely have at least one great horned owl still, you know, they're going to be eating more at nighttime. And we do, you know, make sure that we're getting them appropriate exercise and housing and providing them with food like mice, for example, and then testing their behaviors outside in our enclosures. Uh, and then we also have a bald eagle that is still in care who had some fractures of the wing. So it's actually the finger bones uh, in the bird. So the very end of the wing, uh, the, the metacarpals, which is actually a major and minor metacarpal were fractured. So that bird is, you know, underwent surgery and is still in care and doing great. And then we have a very interesting case of a tundra swan that has just recently come in. Unfortunately, you know, we see a lot of injuries. Usually it's something related to maybe lead toxicity at this time of year. Uh, this bird, unfortunately, there was illegal activity, um, including potential shooting case. So, you know, all of those types of things, we certainly work with our local conservation wardens and our U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, DNR. So, you know, those are the types of cases definitely we're in communication with about this all the time, but also just a really cool bird in general. And then uh, for our, let's see, nocturnal possum, uh, he, he's our only evening feeder and uh, certainly is growing. Uh, it was a young of the year, so a little too small when he came in, had some injuries, um, and is growing and gaining weight. And so hopefully he'll be a very nice release animal here upcoming pretty soon. So that is our species update, and that's the animal you know, admissions and birds that we're keeping in care right now that we are constantly treating and medicating and feeding, trying to get them through their injury period uh, so that they can be successfully released. So we, we thank everybody that helps us in our program. And for those of you that find sick and injured animals, uh, definitely give us a call if you're ever unsure, you have a question about wildlife, maybe you think it's sick or injured, maybe the bird is, you know, been there for a long time and you're not sure should it have migrated already. We get a lot of those calls at this time period and want to be open with our phone line to be able to troubleshoot. So uh, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. An exoplanet is a planet that exists outside of our solar system. Typically, these distant planets still exist in our general celestial neighborhood, though, that is the Milky Way galaxy. But this week on Radio Astronomy, crew member Andrew Nine tells us about the discovery of a different type of exoplanet, one that exists in another galaxy. Good evening, and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine, and tonight I'd like to talk about an incredibly exciting piece of news. We may have just discovered a new exoplanet in another galaxy. The discovery was announced yesterday by the Chandra X-ray Observatory, and it's set to be published soon in the journal Nature Astronomy. In the paper, a team of astronomers led by Dr. Roseanne DiStefano describes how they observed an object transit and X-ray binary in the galaxy M51, or the Whirlpool Galaxy. They conclude that this transit was likely the result of a planet in orbit around the system. But how could they possibly know that? And what does it all mean? First, let's talk about the system that's hosting this possible exoplanet. An X-ray binary, 
like the one observed in this paper, is composed of a star and a compact object such as a neutron star or a black hole in orbit around each other. The compact object is so dense and so close to its companion that it pulls material off of the companion and onto itself in a process called accretion. The compact object is also really small in diameter compared to its companion, maybe the size of a small city or even smaller than that. This means that the matter pulled off the companion does not usually just fall straight onto the compact object, but gets spun around it into a disk. This is called an accretion disk. As particles within the accretion disk run into each other, they get really, really hot. About a million degrees Celsius hot. This is hot enough that the accretion disk emits light in X-rays, hence the name X-ray binary. Because the accretion disk is so hot, it's also very bright and can be seen from truly immense distances. This particular X-ray binary was spotted in the Whirlpool Galaxy, about 31 million light years away. The possible exoplanet was spotted because it transited its host X-ray binary, meaning that the planet crossed between us and its host. This is a very common method of discovering exoplanets. In fact, the vast majority of the 4,500 or so known exoplanets were discovered through transits. As a planet crosses in front of a star, it blocks a little bit of the light and causes the star to dim ever so slightly as seen from Earth. If you keep track of a star's brightness over time, a transit will show up as a small dip. The properties of a transit can give us a lot of information about an exoplanet. The depth of the dip in the star's brightness can tell you how big the planet in question is, and the time between dips tells you the period of the exoplanet, or how often it orbits its host star. There have been multiple missions to study transiting exoplanets, the best known of which is Kepler. For nine years, Kepler observed more than 500,000 stars in our galaxy and discovered over 2,600 exoplanets through their transits, or about half of the exoplanets that we have ever discovered. Many of these exoplanets are both very large, about the size of Jupiter or even larger, and orbit very close to their host stars, making complete orbits every few months or even every few days. Their dips are both large and frequent enough to easily be picked up from Earth. The transit observed around this X-ray binary was a bit different. While the accretion disk can get extremely hot, only the innermost parts of the disk shine in X-rays, which ends up being a very small region. Small enough that a typical planet can completely block this region as seen from Earth. Dr. DiStefano and her collaborators saw exactly this. The X-ray binary was shining in X-rays, then went completely dark for about three hours, and then went back to its previous X-ray brightness. Because the light was blocked completely, that meant the transiting object is opaque, ruling out the possibility of a gas cloud. The best explanation for this transit is a planet. The authors concluded that this possible planet is roughly the size of Saturn, and it orbits its host binary about once every 70 years. That means we won't be able to see a transit again anytime soon, and what data we do have is all we've got. Astronomers around the world are examining the data and results as we speak 
to see if there are any other possible explanations for this transit. If the planet explanation holds out, this will be the first exoplanet ever discovered in a galaxy outside of our own. This by itself is an incredible achievement. But all this brings up another mystery. How did that planet get there? This isn't the first time we've seen a planet orbiting something other than a regular star. We've seen planets in orbit around white dwarfs and even around other neutron stars. We don't really know how these planets got to be where they are. Either they were formed from the debris left over after their host stars first died, or they somehow survived the often violent end of these host stars. For this planet orbiting an X-ray binary, this could mean surviving an entire supernova. For now, we have no idea. It will take a lot of studying and careful observations to find out more about how this planet and other planets like it came to be where they are today. In other news, Washburn Observatory has resumed public observing nights. There will be public observing on the first and third Wednesdays of the month, weather permitting. The next public observing night is currently scheduled for Wednesday, November 3rd from 7 to 9 p.m. Keep an eye on our Twitter at WashburnObs at Washburn underscore OBS for more updates. This is Andrew Nine from Radio Astronomy. Thank you for tuning in and have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's live local news at six. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish Language News with Enrico Patio. Good night. And at 7 o'clock, you're listening to WRT 89.9 FM, Madison. Coming up in Nuestro Patio.